questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight we discuss worldwide astrological predictions for 2018. Greetings, I'm your host Mal Fabregas of Veritas Radio. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all our material, past, present, and future, all you have to do is subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. And to tell us what he sees in the future, tonight's special guest is John Hogue. John writes on the subject of the occult, parapsychology, mysticism, and prophecy. He is considered a world authority on Nostradamus and is the best-selling author of numerous books, including Nostradamus, The Complete Prophecies, and Nostradamus, The New Millennium, The Millennium Book of Prophecy, The Last Pope, and Messiahs, The Visions and Prophecies for the Second Coming. His work has brought him international acclaim. He has been published in 18 languages and sold over 1 million copies worldwide. In addition, he has appeared in over 1,000 radio and television shows and over 150 documentaries on four continents. John Hogue joins us directly from an island north of Seattle, Washington. Hello, John, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm doing fine, Mel. It's good to be on your show. Thank you very much. It's been a long time since I've been wanting to have you on here, especially at the end of the year. Every year, we get a lot of requests for people to come in and and tell us what they see, especially those who who carry a a a gift, if you will, the gift that you have, in being able to to see the future in many ways. First of all, for those who may not know who you are, and I doubt it because you've been around for a long time, John, just give us a little bit of a background of what, when did you discover the gift that you were given? The gift is not exactly that I make predictions. The gift that I discovered was the ability to get out of the way. That's essentially my my dharma, my my religiousness practice is to simply get out of the way and it just so happens that in doing that uh, I have uh, attained a certain fame for peering, getting out of the way and seeing things, the potentials of the future. They are potentials. They are echoes of the things we enact in the present. They also in an odd way, my work with future gazing is fundamentally anti-prophetic. I'm actually using the future to bring people back into the one moment where they actually are empowered to change everything, and that is the eternity of the present. But it has taken me in a strange, almost tantric discipline of in Tantra, of course, most people popularly think of Tantra, they think of the path of sex to superconsciousness. But it's more about the life force itself. In Tantra, you don't, you don't uh, deny things or repress things. You go deep into them and through them and through the understanding of them, you transcend. That is the hypothesis of this subjective science. So, I, I allow people full range of their interest on what's happening tomorrow and all the ways in which it reflects uh, what they're doing today. And then I bring them back to today. The other thing that's important is that 
to be accurate at this work, one has to put one's own personal affairs, personal identifications aside so that one can simply look at it as as an innocent intelligence. Almost look at the at it as uh, neither this nor that, neither for nor against. And that has really helped me uh, penetrate the noise that is so charged up in this field. I mean, in a way, I've chosen a field, or it's chosen me, that does the thing you're never supposed to do at the dinner table, talk about politics and religion. <laughs> but that's what I do. And it's it, it tends to stir a lot of people up uh, because it brings up a more important layer to this. And that is uh, how we make the future so predictable. And a lot of opportunities come up when I make predictions for people to kind of react or respond to what I'm saying. And in those moments, one can see the act of how we fuel the future, how we make, how we we seed each generation to a uh, new generation to be seeded with the subconscious habits and um, reactive tr- uh, traditions that almost ensure that we will repeat and continue the wars, the problems, the things that we see again and again. So the past the mind takes the past in a collective sense and wants to make it the future. And we are reaching a point now which makes this sort of work of the future gazing so important now. So we're reaching a critical mass in the 2020s that are just a few years away where we cannot continue this cycle of repeating the past and the future without threatening the future existence and sustainability of humanity on this planet. So I'm, the work is quickening. But what happens, John, in the first thing that caught my eye when I was reading your books in the past few days was I'm looking at all these Confederate statues being taken down. I'm thinking of the Library of Alexandria. And you say that we may be heading into a violent second American Revolution or Civil War. And let me just read, if I might, a quote that you include from Jad Gurdjieff from 1916. He says, quote, There are periods in life of humanity which generally coincide with the beginning of the fall of cultures and civilizations when the masses irretrievably lose their reason and begin to destroy everything that has been created by centuries and millenniums of culture, unquote. If we destroy or erase our past, and I'm sure this has been happening for hundreds if not thousands of years, Aren't we becoming slaves of our past, not knowing the mistakes that we made, and therefore we repeat them again and again? Well, the difference is that people do not understand their past. And that's the big problem. The past should never be repressed or erased. Uh, It needs to be properly understood. There has to be a, a... under understanding a standing awareness underneath what is the source of why we do all these wars why does habit get carried and so um, the people who are actually erasing it like I say in the book I say the when the last vestige of confederacy when the last well 
statue is taken down in this country, I said that will be the beginning of the of a new slavery, because um, that's again how a misunderstanding of the past, the burning of Alexandria Library, the the erase, the burning of books by the Hitler Youth. Uh, the blowing of the great Buddhist statue on the side of the mountain in Afghanistan by Al-Qaeda. Yeah, the Taliban, yes, uh, is, is, a, is, is no different than the images of people pulling down that Confederate soldier's statue in Williamsburg uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the riots there, and then spitting on it and hurling shoes at it and stuff. It's exactly what you saw the Taliban doing. And there's essentially the lesson is there's no difference. And understanding the past will break its repetition in the future. The other thing, too, is that um, a, a more spontaneous and intelligent humanity that is not repeating itself uh, will be a more unpredictable humanity. Intelligence is more true intelligence. And I'm not talking about intellectual. I call it uh, intellectual bling. Um, but, you know, intelligence is a unique and elusive thing. It's something the mystics say we're born with. And it then proceeds that for the next two decades of education and, and becoming a member and visiting this planet, learning its identifications, but then turning the identifications into our, who we are is, is almost like making, convincing a child over a couple decades this, to believe that he is the car and not dr- the driver of the car, the vehicle he's in in his life. And, and that, that, is, that is something that we've gotten away with but we can't anymore. So we're actually in the perhaps the first time we're really having to evolve. Some people think, you know, why? How, how can we go this far and still be doing the things we are doing that are so savage? And I said, well, maybe that's an indication that we really haven't started yet. You mentioned the statues in Afghanistan, and I think of right here in the United States. What prevents somebody from going to Mount Rushmore and doing the same thing there and going to Washington? Well, yeah, there was, uh, there was a call from the Antifa movement leaders to tear down the statues of Washington as well because he had slaves. Right. Um, and and the, the um, single-pointed stupidity of that is that if, if, if you're looking for some impossible purity— You will miss all the jewels of, you know, it would be like somebody saying, let us burn all the scores of Richard Wagner. Let us erase the glorious sounds of Tristan and Isolde, which is an incredible story about literally two lovers annihilating the division of their identity and becoming one with love as one entire cosmic whole. I mean, what, a, what an amazing concept. But it comes from a man who also struggled from anti-Semitism. Are we to just erase, are we to give power to the faults of a man or give encouragement to the good? I mean, I even would give encouragement to Adolf Hitler for the fact that, that during the middle of the war, a general recounts this story at Berchtesgaden, where 
uh, where you know he's thinking nine thousand soldiers are dying every day in this battle that they're in with the Soviet Union and the West, and Hitler's canary died that afternoon, and so he caught the the Fuhrer crying like a silently like a child at his dead canary, and and he and I was saying ah there's a moment of humanity, there's a moment to build on even with a man like that. Um, the man man got angry, understandably, saying, how can he cry about a dead canary when we're losing 9,000 men a day? Um, but he, again, this, uh, everybody has inside them a Christ and a Hitler potential. Are you referring to duality? Basically, we have to accept that duality exists? Well, duality is... Perhaps something, uh, it's, it's deeper than that. Um, the appearance of duality is certainly there. That is certainly there. But the, 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 the question, the deeper question is, is there a witnessing consciousness? It, what, is, what is it that reflects what appears to be duality? Like a mirror, neither... When something's ugly before the mirror, the the duality is 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 illuminated and reflected by the consciousness as the judgment evil. Or next, something beautiful. The mirror, without any judgment, looks at that as beautiful. You know, it it well, it doesn't judge it. It just these. It's it's a difficult thing. I mean, I would say this that one of the biggest problems that is the engine of prophecy that I've come encountered directly is in myself and then going deeper through meditation, self-observation, becoming aware of a compassionate bridge to all other people struggling with the same thing all over this world is that um, the predictability is a cause of the... I call it the law of happenstance. It's not like anybody started it. It's not like there's some evil genius or UFO something or other that's trying to create a, a world of, of darkness on our planet. It is just any more than the shadows responsible for that which it's coming off of in the light. It's the shadow. Uh, we, we seem to be turned... Uh, identified very much into our shadows and forgetting that light which creates it on the wall. That light is almost forgotten in us, although it is who we are. It is our very being. And and so the problem then is, is what I would call mind. The programmed, identified uh, mind that sees uh, sees what I'm saying as nothingness rather than perhaps seeing it in a different light as no thingness, which is quite different. It looks at the world and the mind reacts and says, I am feeling insecurity. But with meditation, the magnification of that is inward observation, which means it is in security. And then most people think they, they're trained by their societies to think that they don't matter. Everybody's more powerful than them. The leaders are impossible to control. And they've completely, by their societies, been trained not to look in and realize that each person is like an atomic 
splitting of the atom of consciousness as potential. So they, but they look at themselves because of the mind that's programmed and say, I'm insignificant. But if you venture inward, you could actually have an experience of being insignificant. So these are just hints. I'm using the problem to describe <laughs> the way of getting out of the problem, which is difficult. It's like, it's like if, if I were, if we lived in a world where we only saw shades of gray and black and white, and I told you that there's actually technicolor, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to, I mean, the whole term of the word ecstasy, ecstas, is to leap out of the thing that you're stuck into in the ancient Greek for that feeling of being completely joyous and blissful and orgasmically sent out of this this condition. Um, but it's like love. It's hard. You can't measure it. It's It perhaps doesn't even exist and because it does not exist it does this so perfectly it it cannot not exist because it's it's beyond existence and non-existence i mean even nothingness is a mind concept yeah but when you think about right now i have two things that concern me and i'm not i don't have your gift to see the future but i can look in in our past that has not been deleted or erased yet and i can see how in the past i would say eight, ten years, we have been divided. There's this division taking place, and it's only getting worse. And to that, you add this, I think you call it, institutionalized forgetfulness. Is there such a thing? And if so, what is the true purpose of creating institutionalized forgetfulness? Well, first off, it's um, it's it's a thing born out of the happenstance of unconsciousness. It's a It's a thing that um, I mean, there's not, there's not actually someone, um, it simply happens. I know this is going to be hard to explain, but things, when, when people are not a, a, at home in their witnessing consciousness, just take this as a hypothesis. Everything I'm saying, I want people to doubt in the true meaning of the Indo-European roots of that word, which means to hover between two possibilities, that I'm full of it, or maybe I'm on to something. And then take take everything I say tonight, and then go in and see if it resonates with your own experiences, and then ex and make your own exploration into these issues. But the... One could certainly see uh, that people in power have, by habit, succeeded in the world by disempowering masses, of majority of people. I mean, in one example of that is what happened after World War One, when the French and the English decided to divide the Ottoman Empire, and they tried to actually create a situation where the least, the smallest populations had the most oil. Uh, and why would they do that? Because they feared the possibility of the long long uh, something people in the west don't understand the long desire of the arab peoples to have a a, a pan arab uh super state um you know everybody has the same language and it was even tried by the bathists in syria and in iraq uh 
and the West eventually destroyed one of the Ba'athist movements and almost destroyed the Syrian one, but it seems that they have failed uh, uh, so far, but now... Because of as Russia. I, as, because of Russia, actually, you know, this is one of the big problems in the world that, and I will get back to this issue that you voice, but first to say that um, what I see in the world is a situation where the United States has uh, since, and not by any design, but it just so happens that we were a nation that we only built military weapons and f fielded armies and built fleets when we were being threatened. Um, that was broken by no one's fault, really, but by an unconscious perpetuation that when the Cold War arose out of World War II and the nuclear weapons were suddenly now, I mean, people don't understand in America that we started the arms race. We, By the time the Russians lit off a, a nuclear weapon in, 19, in the late 40s, we already had 454 of them. There was no need to build 454 when no one else had any. I mean, uh, so so then began the happenstance of a arms race between two ideological sides, economic, ideological, political points of view, the so-called free world and the so-called socialist world. And it, it created a, the first unique form of a Cold War, which required an industrial, a continuation of the industrial might that we would uh, create first, like in our Civil War, and then when the Civil War was over, we went back to peaceful manufacture. We did the same thing with World War One. We went back to peaceful manufacture, but this sustained... Uh, existential threat of nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States lingered this war preparedness on to 45 years or so into 1989. And what that then did is create an industry of containment that the Cold War created that spent trillions of dollars, made trillions of dollars for, for many of the people who are in the arms business. And now when it ended, when the Cold War ended, they had quite a shock. They suddenly said, my God, we, we're all out of a job. We're not going to make billions anymore. And thus began from the day after the Cold War ended, it's one of the reasons why the neoconservative movement rose and other and neoliberalism and all that is was an attempt to find another enemy to keep the world united. And and I'm I read this directly out of the original manifestos of neo neoconservatism. Um, they they needed to find a new enemy and and within so many words, if there wasn't one, create one. Um, they tried to create a new Cold War situation with the war on terror. That didn't quite work. And now, since 2014, uh, the same people who profit out of sustaining wars rather than ending them has tried to reinstate the Cold War, Cold War 2.0, with the Russian Federation. And we are, are we not seeing McCarthyism re, re, reviving again in, in McClintonism, I call it, you know, where suddenly, suddenly the faults of people are not faced, but almost 
it almost feels like what we're doing in America now is similar to what happened to Jews in Nazi Germany. The Russians are the new Jews, the scapegoats for everything that's wrong, for the for the people who lost their own elections and are not actually taking stock of and taking responsibility for this. Um, the the amount of so that's how history repeats itself because it's not understood and rather than burn the statues and rather than take down the past and burn it away the past will be laid to sleep when the human race understands and learns its lessons from the past and then does not repeat them anymore in an odd way the past will kind of be dropped but not not in a suppressive way but through understanding i mean it's like the story of buddha when he woke up and this finally became enlightened you know the whole world became enlightened with him and you know he did not destroy the past he just discontinued from it in a very blissful and lovely way and that's also potential for us well i think it's all profit-driven. You mentioned how in the past, you know, wars were fought and then we created weapons for that. That's, there's a quote out there. Once weapons were manufactured to fight wars, now wars are manufactured to sell weapons. Same thing with the cancer industry. Will we ever see the cure for cancer? Absolutely not. I'm not being pessimistic here. As long as the structure, the power structure stays intact, they're not going to allow it. But you said something yeah. very, very very important in your book when you say, and this is something I've been talking about all the time, that we need to stop this left-right paradigm. You say to abandon the two-party system, form an alliance of Americans to find common ground. I mean, folks, there's so many people out there who are, you're told that they're opposed to your views, but if you sit down with them to have a cup of coffee or tea, you can sit down and you have so many similarities. You can find common ground. But the powers that want to be don't want us to be able to meet you and I, John, to discuss their differences. Why is that? To keep us divided so we don't conquer? To keep us to keep us misinformed, stupid, afraid. Um, you know, in a way, uh, there has been attempts to to educate and make people more literate in the world, more so than any century before the 20th century into this century, but. I now see the old habits coming back. Um, the feudal system has not died yet as a habit in us, and it is it has come again in the neo-feudal system, which uh, you could see you've got the, the 1%, the people who are hoarding half the wealth in the world, are, are creating a new class system where uh, when you look at, at a... There, there could be definitely some, some uh, direct plan of certain people. Uh, who else decides to take away civics classes from most of the high schools for the last few generations? What is the motivation of taking civics classes away? What's the motivation of taking physical education away? Uh, it certainly will help the sickness industrial complex have perpetual patience when young kids who in their formative years become older and the things they didn't do to develop their bodies physically start and the junk they eat 
starts uh, making a uh, not only disempowered people, sick people, but in short, there's always been the the idea of in the in the unconscious struggle of the egoistic mind to have the battle of the fittest, the people who who their kids get the education they need to be not as a way of enlightenment, but as a way of disempowering other people. And then what it ends up doing eventually is if people finally have enough, and but they often lash out in a very uh, driven by the most unconscious state uh, that you can see, and that is the unconscious state of crowds. Indeed, going back to the riots that happened and the the statues being torn down, um, th- that is mob mindedness. And so I, I have a new word for revolutions. I, I would actually say there has not yet been a collective revolution. There's certainly been a revolution in of individuals awakening to their full potential. But as far as the collective, I call it react illusion rather than revolution. People are reacting to one set of illusions and replacing them with another. And that's why the revolutions don't succeed. Understanding this, um, and like some people, I almost feel we're going to feel let down hearing that. You mean our American Revolution and other revolutions always inevitably lead to this? Well, yes, not because they need to, but because of our misunderstanding. It's not the issue of the failure of the revolutions. I mean, our revolution had a long run. But it seems now to be in a crisis since 1776 that it's never been in before. Even before, I mean, in the book, you know, I, I actually show how eloquent were the arguments of the white supremacists in South Carolina when they made the initial declaration of independence of the Confederacy. I mean, but but I made that point in my book all right, alt-left, uh, a community of, beyond this, a community of Americans, um, to make the point that the people that were writing me and debating me about it, uh, who are supporting and defending white supremacy, they don't even know their own history. It's almost like they, the history was, uh, I said, they must have gotten that from the University of Rhett Butler and uh, Robert E. Vivian Lee, you know, of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Gone with the know? Wind. <laughs> yeah. And uh, their idea of what the good old South used to be like. And so in the book, I, I kind of deconstruct uh, through several people who wrote me passionate letters. I'm glad they did. That took some guts to do that. But I deconstruct them and uh, their points. And then I, at the end, I, I show that the issue was, was the Civil War based on race and, and, and uh, slaves? And my point basically is that if you look back I made this hypothetical change where I said, well, what if populations had been such that um, the South was populated with a, a large enough population that they, they could, through European stock alone, sustain a labor force for their agrarian economy and did not feel the need to go and grab uh, slaves from Africa to to tend their fields? Um if that had happened, where would there have been a need for a Mason-Dixon line? Where would there have been a need to feel like the Union, which actually were breaking 
the Constitution with what they were doing, but for a morally higher reason. And the arguments are quite eloquent uh, from the South Carolina uh, Declaration of Independence. Uh, but in them, it's very clear that they they saw it as their right and their assumption to see black people as subhuman and that they had a right to have them as slaves. So slavery was the issue. And so, you know, in this, in this, what I'm trying to do in the, when I make a statement like we're going to, we're in this, this red blue, just like the blue and the gray of the civil war, we may have a civil war that's the, the blue and the red, this identification politics Identification comes from the same root word that idiot comes from. And idiot in Greek means under the illusion of being separate from the whole. And that that is a situation that, if this potential continues to deepen, will lead to a number of visions that I talk about in the book, including my own, which got my phone wire tapped in 1997 when I said similar things about the potential of this this polarity in America if it keeps going it would lead to a civil war in the 20, in around 2020. You said that 20 um, years ago? Yeah, and my phone started clicking for about 6 months after that and because my landline must have connected through, through some routing um and so uh yeah, that that was said long ago, um, and and now we're at the threshold of it. And you know, in one aspect, I always try to see the potential good in anything. And the times of upheaval do they can get things much worse. That's certainly often what happens when consciousness has a quality of gravity; it pulls people down. Um, and crowds tend to pull people down into a, a, a semi-conscious. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of those people who are tearing down statues, if they actually watched footage of themselves abusing the statues, I'm sure some of them now out of the crowd mindset might have been a bit embarrassed and say, my God, why did I do that? I'm just a simple guy. Why am I <laughs> I'm vandalizing Um that often happens when people are in, in crowds. I mean, there's this great story from my teacher Osho where he was watching a riot in India when he was a university professor and there was this very nice gentleman that was his neighbor and and pe- people were ransacking and looting and then suddenly his neighbor just grabbed a big clock and started carrying it home. And he went out into the riot and tucked on his robe and said, why are you doing that? And he said, I don't know why. It just feels like everybody else is doing it. I felt compelled to do it myself. I mean, that's a classic example of what happens in the in the crowd mind. Well, don't you think that perhaps, let's take one person, George Soros. Maybe these people, as you said, that are watching themselves on TV doing that, are thinking, you know, but at least I got paid for doing it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, it's... um. There's a lot of that. Um, the it, 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 the people who tend throughout time to to be the overlords. It's one of the phrases I like to use. Is our overlords like to keep us overwhelmed? And it is uh, 
part of the happen the habits of uh, the patterns of habit that are unfortunately very predictable and it gives me a dubious distinction of my accuracy because I feel I have my finger on the pulse of what unconsciously propels the past to be repeated in the future. You know, it, different clothing, different technology, different religious extremism or political extremism, but still there it is. And and uh, you have the people who have the power and then they surround themselves with a, a cadre of another class of people that, that are the gatekeepers and controllers the police forces, the security, the spies, and things like that. And then and then you have the serfs. The difference between serfs of the medieval times, uh, feudal people, and today is that today we decorate our feudalism with a lot more baubles of intellectual accomplishment, but it doesn't it doesn't stand for Intellectual accomplishments of any kind, in my view, is not a testament to one's wisdom. Uh, even even Einstein famously said, the difference between a genius and a mediocrity is that a genius knows his limits. Speaking of, uh, you alluded a few minutes ago about Gun with the Wind. I don't even know the book and the movie as they are will be around unedited much longer, if at all. And speaking of that, uh, with the advent of technology and e-publishing, do you see a time in the future where every publication will be electronic? And if so, do you see any work that threatens the system will be edited or removed from circulation? Uh, perpetuating this thing of erasing our past. Well, and it's also controlling our thought in the present. It's it's erasing the past or revising it, and uh, and it's an old habit. I mean, when one pharaoh died, he would try to erase the statues of uh, the new pharaoh would erase the statues of the old to erase his memory, and so this is not a new problem. But uh, with our, you know, at one point, I want to make it clear: I am all for scientific advancements because I understand that science. Is neutral. Uh, the, the question is not a hammer can build a house or it can be wielded by a psychopath and as a murder weapon. The hammer is not responsible for it. It's the lack of consciousness of the wielder. Um, the you, you see exactly what you're talking about in this very sophisticated way happening with the way the social media and the Internet, which has been a way to connect with the world. And if you use it right, I mean, I talk to people from all over the planet and they share with me. But because of the way I do things, I'm aware of not being categorized by Google searches or Facebook searches that uh, I, I can see early on, magnify one's own narcissism and make sure that you create a community, which is not a community. It's a gaggle of yes men and women who just see your doo-doo doesn't stink. And over time, <laughs> <laughs> and over time, is it any wonder that that people, uh, when someone like when some Trump supporters peacefully assemble in the campus of the free speech movement, Berkeley, and just stand peacefully 
First Amendment protects them doing it in their little red caps. And then there's the people just that don't agree with their existence wants to literally destroy them, um, take pictures of them and post pictures all over the campus of these people saying, these are the new fascists. Kick them out of our of our campus. What in the world was, was Rachel Maddow of MSNBC doing when I turned her on and she's showing footage of the people with their tiki torches from Best Buy or wherever from off from Home Depot doing their peaceful uh, torchlit march. I don't agree with their politics. But they have a First Amendment right, as long as they peacefully assemble, to uh, have their march with their stars and bars flags and their white sheets and all of that. But she, she said, looked at them and said, I want you, all of you, speaking to her audience, she's like ordering her audience to say, remember these people. We're already hearing reports that because these people, which are dumb enough not to wear masks, are are make sure they all lose their jobs make sure that they will always forever be known as racists and i'm thinking rachel maddow your your father's side of the family you're from polish jews it's like putting a star on their chest basically what you're the, saying the star of david of the of of auschwitz and dachau you yeah. are you are speaking the same unconsciously certainly she's not aware of what she's doing most people aren't aware of what they're doing um she she's literally become the people that's the attitude that people had against the jews in germany and 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 she's not even thinking that, okay, you're going to destroy their ability to live. What about their children, Rachel? Their children, you're also hurting their children. You're breaking up families. It's just like, and to actually goad people uh, to, to do that. I, it was one of the moments that inspired this book to be written when I just accidentally turned her on. It was almost like a serendipitous to to catch her in the act of saying one of the darkest things I've ever seen a a news uh, anchor say uh, incite um, persecution and that and I would have to say is that going to make things better is that working for us I mean the problem one of the biggest problems in the United States has been and it was a problem that the founding fathers immediately recognized after the new nation was formed. George Washington commented on it. Jefferson commented on it. Adams commented on it. And, you know, this, these, these alt-left, which are just as extreme, if not more extreme, than alt-right people, I've certainly seen the left in my own correspondences over the last uh, dozen years show a, a uh, predilection for being more violent and threatening in their letters than the people who attack me from the right. Um, perhaps that's because a person who identifies, remember identity comes from the root of idiot, to be separate from the whole and the illusion of that. But what's the logic? I don't mean to interrupt you, John, but what's the logic? I agree with what you said. I've, I also get hate mail from the left and the right, but the left seems to be more violent in the words, and they're supposed to be the love and light, the enlightened ones. It makes no sense to me. Here's what I see from it. 
It's, I've seen it for years. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'll never go to a peace rally. <laughs> because the people who preach love preach it because they don't know love. They're seeking the thing they don't know. And they don't know that they don't know. They'll talk all, all and all and all they can about love and progress. The people who are identified with progress, and I stress identified, not understanding what progress is and then living by it, but making an identity politics out of it, um, are people suppressing a huge retroactive repressive violence. They're not uh, the people who preach tolerance or the people who don't know tolerance. And it's just often the things that we that we demand of others are the things we have not faced and understood in ourselves. Absolutely. You know, I, I just think that this left-right paradigm has to stop, and we have to understand that this is orchestrated for a reason. And you saw this in 1997. It's 20 years after now, and it's almost coming to fruition. You know, abandoning the two-party system and sitting down to find common ground. I think that's very, very important. Now, in your book, there's a quote here that you wrote, uh, quote, I asked my oracle to share with us in detail what needs to be reformed now to revitalize the American political and economic future, preventing such a terrible future. This is the oracle's answer, unquote. What was the oracle's answer? Well, I in that chapter, I laid out a list of things that I wrote in 2014. Um, a lot of this book is anthologies of things I had written over the years, and I refreshed them uh, in it. Uh, well, there are many things. The first primary thing, more than the nitty-gritty details, which I'll get into later, um, back to what I was saying about the Founding Fathers, when they saw parties forming, They thought, oh man, this is this will bring in special interests. This will bring in a class war. This will bring in a potential end of our republic before it's even started. It's a miracle that the republic has survived through over two centuries. Um, but it is uh, essentially the problem with the party, political parties, is that they promote polarity. They are... It's them against us. It's our platform against your platform. What happens then when the mind is stuck in that habit as a filtration system is that a human being stands before you. And the first thing the mind often comes up with in politics is, is he a Democrat or a Republican? What, what of our platform does he agree with or disagree with? There's not like a, hi, Joe, my name is John. Uh, let's have some coffee and get to know each other and then we'll talk. The humanity has been taken away. Um, the person projecting what they want on the other is not only stripped that person of their humanity, but they've also stepped aside from their own humanity. They're not feeling. They're not intuiting. They're not um, with that person, just as another human being. And and when one is in that space, one exudes a a welcoming, a, a loving energy that can also be a, a, a light to the other to also relax and, and get to know you. And then the thing is that what has to happen 
And I've been warning people on the left and right for decades now that when you seek the lesser of two evils, because both sides think theirs is the lesser of two evils. Steal steal evil. Well, it's like saying, uh, today I'm just going to be the lesser of two pregnancies. (laughs) I'm. You know, uh, and and we all know that even when the pregnancy is as small as a a, a period on a page, uh, it's exactly the same pregnancy when it's bulging out of you nine months later. Uh, so it's a question. So there is the system itself is a, is a dual, dual duopoly mafia cartel of of political control. And I say to the people who actually hold on dearly to this myth of lesser of two evils, the, the Democrat friends who read me, I say, you know, have you noticed, it, follow the money. Where, what does the big power elites, what, what do the people that Bernie Sanders actually talked about uh, who, who want to use the Citizens United, which effectively ended our republic in January of 2010, by making corporations, making a loophole where corporations could pretend to be people, people. You, and free speech was now for the highest price? Uh, you know, if you're standing next to a billionaire, he's got a lot more free speech than you now because his his freedom of speech is qualified by how much money he has. And if you don't have the money, the pockets are, of the politicians are filled by him. And so when that happened, we effectively lost our republic. The end of the United States, as we knew it, already has happened. It takes a little while for things to come around. I mean, this is the nation of sleeping giants. And this giant, uh, by the time we get into the 2020s, may awaken to what had happened, already has happened. And what now we're seeing is a systematic uh, control of the internet by, by very powerful, influential billionaires who run Facebook and Amazon and others who are basically um, deciding what to, you can search for in your search engines. Uh, that's another step towards this. I always told my readers, and this goes all the way back into the 80s, that fascism would return in the 2020s, but it, would have, it wouldn't be Hitler mustaches and swastikas. It would be corporate. It would be a... Uh, a, a corporate fascism that would control all the media and and then control how you search and then eventually will even control um, uh, your ability to make money and make a living Corporatocracy. in various ways. Yeah, it's a kleptocracy. And it... Um, it is invariably something that will happen because democracies are actually mobocracies. There's not. I, there's a book I'm planning to produce next year, which will be the first of my Future Beyond series, which will take a theme, an important human theme, and take it a thousand years into the future with every step described. Uh, and one of the things, the first one, the inaugurational book of this will be uh, A Future Beyond Democracy, where we will look beyond this idea that we conceitedly have is that we're the alpha omega of political evolution, when in fact we're not even the beginning. There's going to be five major evolutions of politics in the next thousand years for the human race, and this is one of the most primitive beginnings of it. 
But the first shock that has to happen, uh, shock is an important stage for evolutionary advancement, unfortunately, but such is the case. Uh, it would be less the case if we were more aware and understood, but it is, a, it is a consequence of the human race not being too awake yet that it has, it has to be slapped across the head by existence, Zen sticked. Um, you know, the, one of the big problems we're running into in the 2020s is we're going to discover that we've been living in a mobocracy that where the people believe that what they call freedom was not actually freedom, but licentiousness. That uh, freedom, true freedom, is a balancing scale between what you can freely do and what your response able to do. Freedom and responsibility have to go hand in hand. Um, freedom is not entitlement, whether you're one percenter or a 99 percenter. Freedom is where you take the responsibility of your freedom, and that means you have to know what your rights are and not have your civics classes taken out of your schools. Um, and even if some nefarious group of people tried that, I'm surprised at all the, the parents who did not rebel against these things being taken away when they could have in the 70s and the 80s. So it's not just the responsibility of the aggressors who, who want to take and exploit and control us. It takes, it takes two. The sadist needs a masochist. The masochist needs a sadist. It's a, it's a relationship. To break the chain of this, people have to take their responsibility for this. It's in one of the books I'm planning, my third book on Trump, is, is really going to be more about the, the state of, of Americans not taking responsibility for what... I mean, we deserve the leaders we get. They are symptomatic of the health of the democracy. And... So, and these are not things to beat yourself down with. These are things that have to be seen. It's almost like if the house is on fire and you do eventually put it out, it's, don't feel bad if the next thing you have to do, feel good about it, is to find out why or what I did to create the problem that the house almost burned down for. This is positive. This is good. Uh, this is this is preventative history lessons. You know, I often say that in the future, people will look back and say that a, a, a civilization, whether it's extraterrestrial or ours, if it's in a mode of curing from its ills, it's still in its childhood. But if it becomes preventative through understanding, it has now reached its childhood end. So, to kind of get back to the other point here is that um, we, the founding fathers, saw the danger of parties. We have not yet seen the danger. I would even see a situation after we've gone through this where parties will be illegal. You know, I bet a lot of the people listening to this show, if if I did a poll where uh, how many of you know that we have the two-party system written in our Constitution as one of our Bill of Rights? I bet half the people would say that's true. <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> we, the Founding Fathers abhorred parties. And when they finally had to deal with them, um, 
a lot of the things that Jefferson stated and other things as prophecy uh, did happen, especially now in our time. So the thing is, if parties are a symptom of polarity strengthening, of making people get lost in identity politics, where we no longer see 62 million people who voted for Trump as, as individuals with their own aspirations, hopes, and fears, but as the, the deplorables. And if the other side looks at the others and say, as the loony liberals, the 65 million people who didn't vote for Trump, this, this strengthens the illusion that we are separate groups, separate Americas. And it's the same kind of thing in the book. I looked at parallels in Nostradamus' time. And one of the things that motivated Nostradamus to risk writing his history of the future, which would really could potentially put him under threat of the church justices. And if it wasn't for his having a disciple in the Queen of France, Catherine de' Medici, he would have probably been burned at the stake for what he wrote. But he was compelled because he could see the danger of a religious civil war rising in France between the Protestant Huguenots and the French Catholic majority. And the demographics of what happened in that uh, civil war, which did start the first of eight in a row that took 40 years, it started in 1562, about four years before he died, in 1566. Uh, he anticipated it, dated it, and it happened. And uh, it's that the demographics of that civil war is more like the civil war that we're setting ourselves up for in our future. It is one where you don't have a clear region versus region, like the north and the south, but a hodgepodge of... I sometimes call it the um, the Democrat uh, blue archipelago in a sea of rural red of our American demographics. It's interesting to note that the Catholics in France were also more urban. The Huguenots were more rural, although there was a mixture of both. Strangely enough, the Huguenots had more princes and uh, people in the elite classes but the the Catholics uh, who were uh, also royals had the kingdom, the the throne. So it's a mix, and so you get more what civil wars are like in most other places, or they're they're uh, they're a chaos, they're a balkanization, uh, a unraveling of, of of region versus region, uh, this neighborhood versus that neighborhood. Um, and this could be the situation that we're setting ourselves up for, unless we understand that the next evolution is not political parties, but com political communities. We have to redefine our politics. We live in politics. Politics is part of life. It's it's almost why I would say another. It's more a social. Uh, invention rather than a scientific invention, but it is it is uh, it, neutral. It depends on the consciousness and love of the capacity of the people using it, whether it does terrible things or can help us bring concord with each other. One of the things that that anyone who lives in a community that is not an isolation, in a, in a, like I live in a village on an island in the Pacific Northwest, and 
our community, uh, just like some of the commune that I used to live in, a whole commune city in eastern Oregon in the 1980s called Rajneesh Param, where I disciple of, of Osho and I used to live in this commune. I've had some very powerful experiences of what is possible when people understand almost from the core of their heart that community, the given law of community is that you can have differences of opinion with everybody. You can, you're all different anyway. Um, even if you come to seek enlightenment from a guru, you're going to all come from different corners of the world carrying your cultural baggage along right. with you. And, but, but there is an understanding that's kind of rooted in love and, and tolerance that says community by its very nature is, is about finding common ground. It's about, because if you don't, if you turn a community into a political party factions, it will just be destroyed and then you'll be without a house and a home. And, and so, so the need to, to have a house and a home in a neighborhood with other neighbors requires that you need to, to it just you need to strengthen what brings you together in harmony, and accept what doesn't as a secondary issue, and then you build upon that. So the list that I my oracle gave me is what I call what I do. To, I had to give it a name. There's really no way to describe what it is. Well, hold it, hold it, because so, we have to break the two segments. Okay. I want you to tell what the Oracle told you when we come back. But let me end with this. You know, you mentioned how most people wouldn't even question if you told them the two-party system is part of the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. And I've said this before, that I bet if the mainstream media, John, said that you could watch a, an eclipse or a magnifying glass, half the population would go blind. And also political parties, by their mere definition, advocate polarity not unity no different than a sports team except the the sports team has a set of rules to avoid playing dirty unlike politics and lastly you mentioned facebook uh, google all those i did an interview last week about social media platforms and i don't think it has anything to do with technology folks but everything to do with sociology and psychology in other words it's data mining and mind control at their best John, how can people buy your books, learn more about your work? Well, uh, one of the ways is just to type in John Hogue at the Amazon uh, search page and just go John Hogue's books, uh, John Hogue books, H-O-G-U-E, and then you'll see a whole bunch of my books prompt up. That's one way to see my, my printed books as well as my e-books. The other thing to do is go to my website, my free website, hogueprophecy.com that's h-o-g-u-e p-r-o-p-h-e-c-y dot com and this book that we've been talking mostly about in this first hour is called Beyond Alt-Right Alt-Left A Community of Americans and it's available as an e-book at Amazon well folks part two I want to really really focus on the worldwide astrological predictions for 2018 a lot of things seem to be converging we're airing this probably in late, probably sometime in November. Some people are talking about another great recession, or as you call it, John, a greater depression. I hope it doesn't happen, but I want to discuss this when we come back. I'm privileged to be here with my special guest, John Hogue. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. 
Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our archive material, go to the members section or subscribe at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for great products, including pure organic sulfur, rebounders, turmeric, and more. Thank you.